I'm sure at some point in your life you have said or someone has said to you, who are you to tell me what to do? If you haven't said it, you've probably at least thought it. Most of us don't like to receive instruction from other people. Most of us don't like to receive commands from other people. And so the normal response is, well, what gives you the right to give me instruction? We're living in an interesting time in our culture where every single week you can pick up the newspaper and there's at least one story about a fight between Christians and culture or Christians and politicians. Christianity, you could say, is under attack all over the place, not just in America, but all over the world as well. And at the heart of the fight that's going on is this simple statement, who are you to tell me what to do? There's a philosophy behind this statement. There's a, there's a thought truth. There's a, there's a thinking pattern behind this statement. That thinking pattern is this. There are a variety of ways to live. Who are you to tell me your way is the right way? The philosophy behind this says there's a variety of gods. All those gods are good. And at the end of the day, we all land in the same spot. This idea, who are you to tell me what to do, all comes back to this central question. Is there one God? Is there one pathway to God? Or does everyone have equal standing? This morning, we're basically run right into a proclamation of Jesus that goes in direct conflict with everything we hear all week long. Jesus makes a proclamation that does not sit well in our hearts and in our minds. But when we hear the proclamation in the context, it comes with a little different tune. Jesus is not necessarily standing out on the street corner saying, hey, I'm the only God, everybody else is idiots, get behind me. Jesus is making this proclamation in the context of giving a promise. Look with me if you would in John chapter 14 at the situation. So the situation is this. The disciples in verse 1, it says, let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, the followers are experiencing some grief. They're starting to be overwhelmed with difficulty because they know there's hardship coming. And so they're worried. They're facing challenges. Sound familiar? This morning, we're not facing the same challenges as the disciples, but everybody here has got a troubled heart in some way. And that troubled heart needs something. That troubled heart needs some medicine for peace. And then Jesus gives us a promise to, to calm the waters. And look with me, if you would, at the promise in verse 3. Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus is making a promise here. There's trouble, and Jesus says, relax. There, there's something good that's to come of all this. And that something good is the promise that we're going to be in the presence of God. And so Jesus has made this promise, and now the proclamation of the I am statement flows from this promise. The promise is magnificent. Most of us read this promise and it's read most of the time at funerals. If you've been to a funeral, you've probably actually heard John 14 read. It's in the hymnal actually to read at funerals. 
The reason that we read it at funerals is because we assume Jesus is talking about going and preparing something in heaven for us and is going to take us to heaven. Well, it doesn't say heaven anywhere in the passage. We don't know exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm going to go prepare a place. We know that Jesus is about to go through the cross, which we can't go through. We know that Jesus is about to go to the grave and conquer it on our behalf. Maybe that's the place where Jesus is going on our behalf. And the promise is not heaven, but the promise is God himself. Verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself. The promise from God is God himself, that Jesus is going to come to his followers and allow his followers to be in the presence of God. This is the greatest promise in all of Scripture, that you and I will be able to live in the presence of God for eternity. The greatness of heaven is not found in the golden heaven. The greatness of heaven is found in the presence of God that is in heaven. And the promise that Jesus is giving his disciples is saying, I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to take you to be with myself. You get to experience the presence of God. And so now that that promise is out there, Jesus has to lay out, how can we get in the presence? How can we experience this preferred destination? This morning, everybody in this room, including myself, is on a pathway to a preferred destination. You're living your life to get somewhere. Everybody here, you want a preferred destination, whether that's a nice retirement, whether that's just simply safety and security, whether that's a certain job, everybody is on a pathway to a preferred destination. Now, everybody, their overarching preferred destination of everyone, even non-Christians, is heaven. Just listen to the conversation of someone at a funeral, and especially the funeral of someone who doesn't grow up in church. Watch Facebook after someone passes away. The common sentence is what? They're in a better place. Well, how is it that everyone has that language? It's because everyone desires that. And everyone believes that they're on a pathway to that preferred destination. Well, Jesus makes a proclamation this morning that actually gives us the route to that preferred destination. Jesus makes a proclamation that, that does rub us the wrong way, but really this proclamation that he gives is good news because he's given us a promise to grab onto, now he's giving us the pathway to that promise. So in verse 6, after the disciples say, well, tell us the way, Jesus responds by saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what he's saying is, I am the pathway to the presence of God. And not only saying is he the pathway, he's saying, I'm the only pathway to the presence of God. When I was growing up and uh, living in Minnesota during high school, I used to help my grandfather farm quite often, and it was a great time in the spring and the fall because you got to spend a lot of time in the tractor. And my grandfather had some land that was kind of by a slough. And so this slough had one field around it, and then there was some crop that was planted in the middle, kind of on an island that had one little path to the island. Now, I always kind of wondered myself, well, Grandpa, it's like 16 rows of crop. Why go to all the effort of planting on the island when sometimes it gets washed out anyhow? But every year, 
made every effort possible to get to that island. Well, one year, I was out digging, what you do before you plant, turning over the dirt thing, and I was thinking to myself in this field, i got to get to the island, and I thought, the main road looks a little wet. And I thought to myself, I've always wondered why they didn't take this other route thing. So I thought, well, I'll try it this time. It seems to be a little bit drier than the main route. So I was driving what they called a 2 plus 2, which is a big tractor with a long nose, and I started to make my way across this pathway, but all of a sudden I noticed is just mud spitting up everywhere, and I feel like I'm starting to sink a little bit. Thing. Well, I made it about halfway, and I could go no further. And all of a sudden, oh, I know why they don't take this pathway. Quite embarrassing to have to call, hey, please come and pull me out. I've got a gentle reminder from my grandfather and uncle. There's one pathway to the island that we take. You see, I thought I would take a different pathway because it looked shorter and easier. And that's natural, isn't it? All of us do that all the time. When we're making a decision which way to travel, what do we do? Choose the shortest path with, path with the least resistance. Jesus is saying that he is the sole entry point into the presence of God. He is the means of access to the creator of the universe. And he's the only means of access. Now, that's where everyone says, slow down just a little bit here. I mean, Jesus was good. Jesus did something great for us. But we shouldn't put others down by proclaiming Jesus to be the only way to God. Well, let's just look for a moment, unpack something. This gets quite deep, but it's extremely important to understand in our culture. Look with me, if you would, at verse 7, and we're going to see the basis for why this is true. Jesus is the only way. Verse 7, Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The reason that Jesus is the sole means of access to God the Father is because Jesus is in complete unity with the Father. That when we say God, we mean Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That there's no other God that exists outside of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So when someone says, well, we're going to a common God, the Father, God the Father, but Jesus is one of many ways, right there means we're not going to the same God. Because if you go to God the Father, you also get Jesus. Because God the Father and Jesus are in complete harmony with one another. Jesus was not just some random angel sent from heaven to earth. Jesus was God himself proceeding from the Godhead here to earth to bring God to us. A mystery way, behind, way beyond human explanation or human words. There's a reason the disciples are struggling to understand this. This is complex. This is mysterious. That God himself exists in the form of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then God himself comes to us in the form of Jesus. And then Jesus says, yes, when you see me, you see God the Father. So the basis of Jesus being the entry point to God the Father is that Jesus himself is in absolute perfect union with God the Father. That you can't have God the Father without Jesus, and you can't have Jesus without God the Father. This is radical, that Jesus is saying 
He is the only access point to God the Father. That everything comes through Him. The reason for that is this. is because this is the way God has made Himself known. Sometimes we make God out to be like this crazy upset grandfather that's over there going, oh, these idiot humans that I created. And so we we think of God like this, and then we think of God going, Jesus, would you go and take care of this situation and bring everybody back to me? No, God, the creator of the universe, is here going, I created a magnificent creation. I said it was good, and now it's broken. And God says, I want my people back. So what does God do? I'm going to send myself. Jesus, you're going to go. You are God. You go on our behalf and bring us to them. You see, the reason that Jesus is the only access point to God is that we would have no chance with God unless God himself came to us because we can't go to God. Jesus is simply putting into words here when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's putting into words the reality of the situation, that there is only one pathway to God. It's through God himself. Now, Jesus has said he's the pathway to God the Father. There's a difference between saying I am the pathway to God the Father in the issue of salvation. So one of the questions that always comes up in this context is, well, what about the guy that was living in the middle of Africa, they never owned a Bible, they never knew a Christian, they never had a chance to hear about Jesus? So you're telling me that that person's in hell today. Did not say that said that the only way to God is through Christ. We don't know exactly how God works in some of those circumstances. We know some things. We know that God says we need to send preachers so that people can hear about Christ. We don't know exactly that there might be a means of salvation through Christ for those individuals. There's this hiddenness of God. I am not saying there's salvation outside of Christ. The only hope for that individual is the same hope you and I have, is Jesus. So we've got to distinguish of, of what we're saying in those circumstances. And this is the final thing. If you're so worried about that person in the middle of Africa right now who's never heard about Jesus, well, go and tell them about Jesus. Do something about it. There's this hiddenness of God, but what he has revealed is this. The only way to him is through Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying he is the pathway to the presence of God because he is the presence of God. So the question now for us that I want to spend the majority of our time on today, and I did say majority of our time there, is this. How do we live in a pluralistic, universalistic, individualistic Um, acceptance society as people who are following a king who has an exclusive message. I mean, this is the dilemma on a very practical level that we all face. And a very personal level that we're all going to face at work and in our neighborhoods. If you haven't faced it yet, you're going to face it very soon. Your neighbors are not exactly like you. Your co-workers are not exactly like you. They have a different belief system. So the question is, how do we live in the midst of that belief system? Let's look here 
first at verse 1 in John chapter 14. Verse 1 just sets the foundation for us of the type of people we're to be. Jesus says to them, Believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, if we're going to live in this world, the first thing we have to realize is we're living as people of faith. We're not living as people of logic. We're living as people of faith. Jesus does not say to his disciples, hey, take heart, it's all going to make sense in a little while. Jesus says to his disciples, trust me. I think the word trust is critical here. Belief can sometimes mean for us that we assent to certain propositional statements. Jesus does not say here, hey, I just want you to believe X, Y, and Z. Jesus says, no, trust me. Trust indicates relationship. That when we live in this world, what we primarily live by is trust in Jesus himself. We're trusting a person. We're not just believing a list of things. We're trusting in a person for life. We're trusting in a person for guidance. Therefore, this is critical, therefore, everything we do is not always going to make sense to the world around us. And everything the world does is not going to make sense to us because we're walking to a different drumbeat. Our source of authority is trust in Christ. Are you walking by faith today? I'm not asking, do you believe the right things that Jesus was raised on the third day? I'm asking, are you trusting in Jesus today to provide only what He can provide? Salvation and life, hope, joy, and peace. This is the basis for how we are to live. We are to be people of faith in a person, Jesus Christ. And now the question then becomes, okay, as people of faith, how shall we live? I want to take just a little bit of a detour today because I think it's, it's important because it's at us. We're running into this every single day. How do we live as people of faith in a world that says, your way is acceptable, it just can't be the only way? I believe what we need to begin to have in the church is simply described, described by somebody else besides myself, describes that what we need to return to is a humble orthodoxy and a humble orthopraxy. Humble orthodoxy simply means the right belief in a humble way. Orthopraxy means right way of living. So you have right practice of your faith in a humble way. What we've lost in the church is this. We've lost a sincere desire to take God at His word. And so we've said multiple beliefs are acceptable as long as we are sincere. Scripture does not say that. Sincerity is not acceptable thing. There is a, Jesus says, believe in Him. Believe in what He teaches. We have to get our belief right. But we have to do it in a Jesus manner. How was Jesus? Jesus was the perfect picture of humility. Jesus went and spent time with anyone and everyone. Jesus was not high and lofty, but Jesus was approachable. Yet Jesus did not waver on the truth. Christians, for the most part, myself included at various times, have responded in one way. Angry, yelling, 
words to people who believe differently and behave differently. When reality, we can still believe the right thing and be humble about it. It does no good to say, hey, we're right, you're wrong, good luck. We've accomplished nothing. We don't even need to say we're right. What we need to do is we need to be solid and maintain in the right faith. Not only do we need to, we don't just need right belief, we need right practice. Jesus lays out specific commands for us, and we need to go about living out these commands in a humble way, where we don't say, hey, look at us, at least we're living the right way. We just need to do it, and sometimes be quiet about it. If we're going to live in this world, it begins by humble orthodoxy and humble orthopraxy, and I believe that that's fleshed out in two specific ways, and that's this. Somebody's disbelief or somebody's different belief or somebody's bad behavior towards you does not justify unchristlike behavior in return towards them. This is where we simply have got it wrong as Christians. People are disagreeing with us. People believe differently than us. But that does not give us the right to speak poorly of them or treat them poorly. Look at every instance in Scripture where Jesus talks about our enemies and the message is pretty clear. Love your enemies. Care for them the same way that you would care for a brother and sister in Christ. And I'm going to get very specific this morning because this is practical for all of us and I don't mean to get too political. But President Barack Obama thing. I've heard some pretty nasty things said about President Barack Obama. And some of those nasty things have come from people who bear the name of Christ. This is a complete contradiction. I do not agree with President Barack Obama in everything that he does. Thing. President Barack Obama and I have completely different systems of belief. But that does not give me the right to speak poorly of President Obama. That does not give me the right to treat President Obama poorly. That doesn't mean I have to agree with him. That doesn't mean I can't speak about the issues. But nowhere in Scripture does someone's misbehavior and misguided belief confirm that we ourselves can then misbehave or treat someone poorly. Think about yourself on the playground for a second. Everybody here has had recess, probably. Even some of you who grew up in the one-room schoolhouse, Mr. Flieger, I'm sure they had recess back in those days. Thing, um, But, you know, as you grow up in recess, and well, I don't know why I'm picking on you today, but this is actually working out pretty well. Thing. So you get, you get in a fight, right? You get in a fight with the big guy, right? What's the response about the big guy? Well, he hit me first. How many times did the teacher say to you, well, I'm sure glad that you hit him back? Thing. Or how many times have you said that to your own kid? Well, you, hey, Yesterday, Jimmy took your hat. Tomorrow, when you go to school, make sure you take Jimmy's hat. Right? We would never say that to our kids. We would never say to our kid, hey, their misbehavior justifies your misbehavior. The same is true for us and more as followers of Jesus Christ. The misbehavior of the world right now, and not only the misbehavior, but the misbelief of the world does not justify an improper response by us as followers of Christ. 
we are living in a world that's universalistic. Everything goes. We're living in a world that's full of plurality. Everything's equal. What we have to do is hold firm to our belief. When forced to give testimony, we give testimony. We have to continue to practice our faith in the right way. But we cannot, we cannot mistreat others because of their misbehavior or they are wrong about their beliefs. We are asked to reflect the nature and the attitude of Christ in all situations. This is a challenge. This is a great challenge because a lot of times it feels like you're being personally attacked in some of these situations. So at the core, you're personally attacked. You've got to reach back into the core of who you are, a child of God, and reflect that image back to the people around you. I'm not making excuses. Do not mishear me this morning. I'm not saying, well, it's okay that everybody believes those things and it's okay that they're mis... I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, we march to a different drumbeat because we walk by faith. We are trusting in Jesus. The next thing that we need to do on a very practical example is this. And I'm not talking at the church level here. I'm not talking about King of Glory heading down and having conversations with the local mosque. I'm not talking about that. And there is a local mosque, by the way. I'm talking at a very personal level, what we need to do is this. We need to find common ground with people who are different than us and focus the conversation back to Jesus. Every religion, for the most part, every religion has got some common ground of language that they use. Higher authority, and every religion has got some sort of language for sin, that not everything is right. And then most religions have some language for how we overcome that which is wrong. We need to acknowledge, hey, those are some common ways we use to describe the world. And then we need to bring it back and say, okay, so a higher authority, there's something wrong. Now we say, where does Jesus fit in the picture? And constantly come back to Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? This is who we say Jesus is. And at the end of the day, we are going to be different, yes, but let the difference be Jesus. Let the conversation come back to Jesus. If you haven't run into it yet, you're going to run into it. The question is this. Are you going to shy away and say, well, each to their own, right? I mean, this is the normal response of Christians. Well, each to their own. Believe what you want to believe. This in itself is not acceptable. We can't just say each believe what they believe. We have to faithfully proclaim Jesus. We cannot control the response but we can control the proclamation. Today, Jesus is making a radical proclamation. A proclamation that does rub the wrong way, if we're honest, and rubs culture the wrong way. But it's a proclamation that's extremely good news because of the promise that goes along with it. That He provides a pathway to the presence of God for people who are sinners. This morning, as we consider the world around us, the question this morning is not, what path is the world around us on? We already know the answer to that. The question this morning is very simply, what path are you on today? 
What path are you on in pursuit of your preferred destination? Jesus is saying today, there's only one path. That path is where He is the way, the truth, and the life. Every time we come up here and we talk about Jesus, the great I Am, we are focused with the decision. We are confronted with the decision to make. Very simply, every time Jesus makes an I Am statement, He's proclaiming something magnificent. We can either say Jesus is a great teacher who did some good things for people who are struggling and left us with some great moral lessons. You can say that about Jesus this morning. Or you can say this morning that Jesus is the great I Am. Jesus is the one who brought God to us. Jesus is the one who brings us to God. This morning, if we say that Jesus is a great teacher and did some good things, the reality is this. That guy can't help us. A great teacher who died 2,000 years ago and left some nice lessons about morality can't help your troubled heart today. That guy can't help you when you're faced with the grave. If that's our response to Jesus, he can't help. But that is not the appropriate response to Jesus. The appropriate response to Jesus is, he is the great I am. The one who has conquered the grave. The one who has gone to the cross on our behalf. The one who has made a pathway possible to the presence of God. This morning, where are you at? Is Jesus a teacher? Is Jesus just a little add-on? Or is Jesus the great I am whose path you want to be on for the rest of your life? Today, just like the disciples 2,000 years ago, we need a promise. And that promise is this, that God is with us. That God promises to be with us for eternity because He has made a pathway through Himself, through Jesus Christ who has died on our behalf. I invite you today to get on that path to the preferred destination, to the presence of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks today that you have made a pathway for us. Lord, we acknowledge that oftentimes we have swerved from the path. We acknowledge that oftentimes we've tried different paths. But Lord, today we ask that you'd restore us, return us to the way of Jesus, restore us to a life of faith. God, this morning we specifically pray for help on how to live in our society and culture at this time. Lord, help us to reflect the attitude and the behavior of Christ, even to people who behave differently and people who believe differently. God, clothe us in humility today. And Lord, today I pray that you would redeem us and restore us to the pathway that leads to your presence. God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.